electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Investors are still reeling from yesterday's new home sales miss, and new figures today show mortgage applications continue to drop. Could the housing slump lead the Fed to slow the pace of rate hikes? Our guest says even the half-point hike expected for July is now starting to look dicey. But retail is rallying today. Nordstrom turning in solid results. Dick's reversing higher after it said business is currently still, still strong. Was last week's retail route overdone? And it was just over a month ago that we saw nat gas prices cross above $7. Today it's 9 Gasoline prices also jumping ahead of the holiday weekend. What it all means for the economy and for investors. But first, Dom Chu is back and he has our number. It's good to be back on a hump day for sure, no less. But I've missed a lot of the market volatility over the last couple of days here. But at this point, the bulls will take... What we are seeing in the market action so far today, it's a mixed picture overall. But the Dow Industrials are down a very modest 50 points right now. That equates to just about one-tenth of one percent at this point. 31,883. The S&P 3947 up six handles, roughly about two-tenths of one percent gains here. And half a percent gains for the Nasdaq Composite up about 62 points, 11,326. So we'll call it stability, maybe showing some signs of a bottoming process. That's what the bulls hope right now, although the bears say that more volatility is yet to come. We'll see what happens here with that. Uh, Kelly mentioned the retail trade. A couple of specific headlines. She mentioned Nordstrom's. Now, Dick's Sporting Goods, that big reversal is still up about 10% right now. Perhaps a little bit more optimism about the business there, especially outdoor activities, despite the fact that their full year outlook was a little bit lower than analysts were forecasting. Kohl's is up 15% after a report from Reuters says that there, there are still bidders interested in the company, so we're watching those shares. And then by extension, the entire retail trade, Bath and Body Works up 8%, Ralph Lauren up 3.5%, even the consumer discretionary ETF overall is up nearly 2.25%, the best performing sector, by the way, in the S&P today. And then one other one that's kind of tied to consumer spending, not S&P 500, but still, it's Wendy's, up about 10% right now. Tryon may be looking to be a little bit more of an active participant in taking over some of this business here. Remember, they're already a large shareholder there. Wendy's shares up about 10% on that bit of news. Over the last year, though, still down about a quarter of its value. So keep an eye on those Wendy's shares. Everything that we spend our money on, maybe it's a sign, maybe it's not. Kel, we'll see, things, we'll see how things pan out this afternoon. Very curious. Dom, thank you very much. Well, the era of lazy investing is over. No longer can you just park your money in mega cap tech stocks or ride the latest meme stock bandwagon to make a quick buck. Investing today requires thinking out of the box, and my next guest is doing exactly that, looking for companies uniquely poised to benefit in this environment, which he says is not a slam dunk for a recession. Joining me now is Abe Deshpande, Chief Investment Officer at Centerstone Investors. Abe, it's great to have you. Let's just start with the recession question. How important is it to you? Well, it's, it's, it's important. I mean, if there's a, a recession, and we would look at a recession as a, a diffusion of weakness across the economy that causes 
you know, high, spiking unemployment and defaults and all that stuff. I mean, that is important uh, to consider for anyone investing in the stock market. That's an event that takes down everything, and there's very few places to hide that. So, you know, we're going to we are concerned just like anybody else, and I think uh, everyone by now knows the odds of a soft landing and the history and all that. Um, so we're 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 looking at things just as everyone else is. I mean, the ingredients are definitely in place. But I, we still don't see the catalyst. Uh, in the past, the catalyst has been an oil price spike, and we had that originally, you know, earlier this year. So I guess one could argue that, you know, uh, continuing uh, strength in the oil prices and product prices will will be that catalyst. But as of now, it's it's not set. It's not baked in the cake, not, it, or it's not set in stone. I notice, and we'll we'll get to a couple of your names here in a moment. But why, or maybe, energy is an area that you think is investable right now? I, how does that factor in at a time when it's already performed so strongly this year, and yet a lot of these energy prices show no signs of slowing down? Yeah, so <laughs> this is uh, something I've been thinking about. I mean, with all the confluence of events and the administration being as perceived as being as weak as it is for the election prospects, um, I am of the view that by the end of the summer, the Biden administration will remove the export ban. Uh, sorry, we'll go back to the export ban, reinstitute it um, on oil and also figure out how to do it with uh, product prices. And that, so that's the one element where, the, like I said, the ingredients are in place for, uh, for a recession, but there's this lever they can pull, try to pull, that would you know almost have the price of pro like diesel and jet fuel and you know and have a lot large effect on, on uh, gasoline prices as well, and they may be really tempted to do that by uh, by the end of uh, the summer. I mean that ban uh, was lifted only I think eight years ago, something like that. So um, for most of the thirty years, we had a ban on crude oil exports, and so it's and it also a dovetail with environmental goals, you know, because doing something like that would really uh, discourage uh, further investment in oil and gas infrastructure in the United States. And ultimately, you would have then, just like gas, natural gas has two different prices in the U.S. and outside the U.S., oil would, would turn into something like that, too. And that just creates a lot of um, uncertainty when, when we're investing in, in the oil space. So I'm of two minds. You know, sure. if, if nothing happens, uh, you know, oil price trajectory will, will go higher However, that will probably be enough to tip the U.S. economy or global economy into recession. Um, but I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that uh, the, we will see a, a change in this export uh, ban that's been in, uh, that was uh, lifted a few years ago. And, and again, just make sure our audience didn't miss that. So basically, you think political risk is the biggest risk for energy investors right now if we do see a clampdown on exports and that sort of thing. So let's get to a couple of the names, Abe, that you think uh, of the whole market offer some compelling opportunity right now. What are they? Well, so, I mean, when I'm looking at a stock, I'm just trying to figure out, okay, what's outside of the box, like, as you said, right? What, where do I have to not worry about what's the, what is, you know, U.S. trade policy going to be like? What is uh, U.S. policy towards, uh, you know, oil and gas going to be like? And I come with, you know, come up to, to a handful of companies that we've been investing for a long time. As you know, Kelly, we've been outside of the meme space and the tech space for various, almost the same reason. Like, I don't want to be a part of that conversation. Right. Um, I, want, I want businesses that have the ability to do well regardless. Like, they're driven by internal decision-making rather than so much by external factors. So companies like Aperigo, for instance, Aperigo is the, the largest um, uh, manufacturer of, of generic 
consumer drugs, consumer healthcare products in the United States. And you can buy that in CVS. Like it's, it would be like the CVS brand of Tylenol, for instance, or you buy it on Amazon. And they're going through a whole, you know, post-COVID normalization. People didn't get colds during COVID, so that hurt their business. Things are getting back to normal. Uh, the business is getting back to normal. And by the second half of this year, their major cost uh, hurdle and many, many other companies, um, which is the cost of transportation, that's going to be lapping last year's cost increases. So you have margin expansion coming uh, at the back end, back half, half of this year and then into next year. That's one example. Another example is a company like Ubisoft, which is a, a video game producer. And yet again, you know, this company went through three years of investment that depressed their uh, results and sentiment, uh, all coincident with um, COVID. Uh, so, you know, essentially there's a lot of just apathy towards the company, but they're exiting that investment phase and they're entering this new, the next three years with a bunch of brand new games where they're, Investments are going to be tailing off. Again, neither of those companies am I going, oh, what's the Biden administration going to do with oil right. prices? Like, like, what are they going to do with China? And are they going to introduce this new, you know, they, the, the, the U.S. government has figured out it's got this new shiny tool of geomonetary, you know, influence through uh, through the Treasury Department and and through um, and trade blockades. So I don't have to worry about all that stuff, these types of companies. Yeah. Most of the center stone portfolios is populated by these types of things. That's why we're value investors. We prefer to be uh, value investors. It has uh, uh, you know many benefits. And your stock picks today, again, is as much about what you're not picking as what you are. Abe, thanks for rejoining us. Thanks, Kelly. Abe Deshpande with Centerstone. Meantime, the weekly mortgage numbers today showing another drop with purchase applications down 16 percent from a year ago and refinancings down 75 percent. This on top of yesterday's massive drop in new home sales and comments from home builder Toll Brothers this morning that they've seen a softening in demand in recent weeks. Diana Olick is here with me now. Diana, welcome to break down just how we got here. Yeah, I know, Kelly. It seems like barely a few weeks ago we were talking about this crazy competition in the red-hot housing market. But in just the last few weeks, we've seen a real turn. Builder sentiment dropped dramatically as they see a big drop in buyer traffic. And for existing homes, we spoke to the seller of this home in L.A. She and her husband put it on the market just a few weeks ago and were already worried that they would not get top dollar. We talked about that a lot. Like, are we making a mistake here? Are we missing the boat? Are we, you know, is everything going to crash in the next three months? And we're going to kick ourselves for not selling our house earlier this year. Now, don't worry. They did end up getting an offer, but gone are the days of 10 or 20 offers. Now it's down to one or two. Why? Affordability straight up. Take a look at what has happened to a $300,000 home in just the last three years. So in May of 2019, with 20% down on a 30-year fixed and the rate of 4.33% at that time, the monthly payment, $1,192. That's not including taxes and insurance. In 2020, that same house was 5% more expensive, but mortgage rates fell at the start of the pandemic. So the monthly payment actually dropped. By 2021, home prices were really surging up 15%, but rates dropped even further. So the monthly payment only up about $100. Fast track to this May. Prices up another 21% and mortgage rates surging. The monthly payment is now almost $800 more than it was in 2019. And for a lot of first-time buyers, that's a non-starter. And even for move-up buyers, it's definitely taking the heat out of demand, Kelly. Probably the biggest question, we'll explore this more with our guest in a moment, but is the market going to crash like we saw in 06, 07? 
or are we likely to just kind of tread water here at this plateau? I think the latter, treading water at a plateau. We're not going to crash the way we were in 2006, 2007, because that was all about bad mortgage underwriting and these rates that would adjust when buyers, uh, homeowners just couldn't afford it. And then when prices came down, they were underwater. They had no way out. That is not the situation now. More of a plateau. Do you pick up, though, on any um, more creative uh, financing problems that could could interestingly enough, crop up now in response to this affordability shock. Well, you know, you were talking about the mortgage lenders, how they are just, they have nothing, no business, no refi business, and they're losing their purchase business. So are they going to start to drop some of their standards a little bit? Are we going to see more of the 3% down, the 5% down? Perhaps we're already seeing more demand for adjustable rate mortgages. So perhaps, but again, not 2007, 2008. We can only hope. Diana, thank you very, very much. Good to have you here, our Diana Olick. The cooling housing market is casting a shadow over the economy, so much so that my next guest thinks a half-point hike is off the table in September. Market's coming around to that view and might be dropped to just 25 basis points in July as well. Let's bring in Ian Shepardson. He's the chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. Ian, this is perfect because we're about to hear uh, the Fed minutes in about you know 45 minutes' time likely to be as hawkish as Fed officials themselves were six weeks ago. But do you think things have already changed pretty dramatically? I think they have changed. You know, the the market has kind of looked at these housing numbers with astonishment. I I don't quite know why they're so astonished, because mortgage applications have been falling for months. This was this was always going to happen. Anyway, markets seem to be surprised by it. It's it's come as quite a big shock. It's got further to go uh, for sure. Uh, And I think it does significantly increase the chance that the Fed steps back from another 50 in July. Uh, And, um, you know, I've I've never really bought the idea they'd do 50 in September as well. So I'm quite happy to stick with 25 then as well. But this is um, this is a potential for kind of a, you know, a rethink. Uh, It's it's not that the whole inflation story suddenly gone away. It, It hasn't. But it has peaked. It's more that I think a combination of a really sharp downturn in housing market activity the potential for a bit of a downshift in manufacturing on the back of the latest disruptions in China and from the Fed's perspective also, maybe a bit of a softening in wage growth as well. You put the three things together uh, and and maybe they start to think, no, do we really need to do 50-50-50 at the next three meetings? I'm not sure that they do and I think markets having a rethink as well. Do you think they're achieving their goals though in the sense that coming into the year inflation was way higher than target, signs of it spreading from goods into services, inflation expectations on the rise, worries about it feeding through to wages. Do you think that they have moved in the direction they've wanted to see financial conditions and the economy move and this housing reset being part of that? Well, they certainly needed financial conditions to be tighter. They were extremely loose. You know, we saw that with with, uh, you know, with record stock prices and, uh, and rates at zero at the start of the year. That was clearly inappropriate. Uh, and I think they've achieved uh, some of the things that they wanted. And they've been helped, I think, as well by the, uh, the moderation in wage growth just over the last few months. And that's come as a big surprise to everybody. Uh, if it continues, and it, it's not guaranteed, but there's the survey evidence suggesting it's a real thing, not just some sort of you know, fluke in the data. If that continues, then by the second half of the year, it does give the Fed a bit more room for manoeuvre. And again, I'm I'm not suggesting they can stop raising rates. They they need to get rates up to something like neutral. uh, and, And we're still a long way from there. But it's not so clear anymore that they need to keep going, hammering away at the 50-50-50, because financial conditions now are significantly tighter. The, uh, the shock in the, in the housing market is really, is really quite profound. You know, mortgage volumes 
uh, have dropped for the last five straight months and they show no sign of stopping yet. So we're going to be seeing weak housing data right through the summer at least. And it seems to me that in that environment, maybe time for a bit of a reset as to the pace of the rate hikes uh, would be appropriate. You know, it's always difficult for the Fed because the, the law of unintended consequences kicks in when you start raising rates. You never quite know what's going to happen to the stock market or to the dollar or to expectations or to credit spreads. But what's happened in the last few weeks, I think, has been quite a, a significant tightening. And we're seeing that in some of the data. We're hearing it from some of the corporates, uh, from the earnings numbers and, and, and the, the guidance. Uh, and maybe in that environment, you know, th they don't need to be quite so aggressive. Has it been enough to spur a recession? I don't think so. No. I mean, the, the consumer sector, apart from housing, the consumer is charging along. You know, we have... We have you know, real-time data from, from Google, which are you know, very strong. Mobility is still trending upwards. We've seen strong data from restaurants, strong data from airlines, strong data from the hotel sector. You know, pretty much everything but housing is doing pretty great. Uh, you know, and it looks to me like consumption in the second quarter is, is going to be 4% plus, you know, better than the first quarter, despite the impact of this soaring gas prices. So I think what's happening is that people are drawing down some of the pandemic savings they accumulated, which is, you know, $3.5 trillion. That's allowing them to cushion the blow from gas prices and carry on with their post-pandemic back-to-normal uh, spending. Uh, and so the, 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 the recession story is kind of difficult if you don't have a consumer rollover because the consumer is nearly 70% of GDP. And right now, the only thing that's weakening is housing. But let's be clear, it's weakening really badly and, and really quickly. It's just that everything else isn't. And just like you warned it would as well, uh, those sales volumes, we spoke about that a month or two ago. Ian, thanks for coming back. It's good to see you today. Yeah. Ian Shepardson with Pantheon. Quick programming note, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly will join me tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll get her thoughts on inflation, the housing market, the rate hike timeline, and more. You definitely don't want to miss it. And still ahead, who are the winners and losers in this new retail economy? Our next guest has a shopping guide as the group tries to avoid its 10th straight week of losses. Plus, we're talking cloud and chip names and earnings exchange. NVIDIA, Snowflake, and Splunk all at least 50% off their highs. What will Wall Street be watching and hoping for in the results. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand.
Welcome back. Poor earnings results from Target and Walmart sent markets into disarray last week and raised deep concerns about the health of the consumer. But now we have better results, or at least trading behavior, from Nordstrom's and Dick's Sporting Goods. And my next guest says there is one big test for retail still to come in the form of these two discount retailers reporting tomorrow morning. Joining me is Simeon Gutman, Morgan Stanley's retail analyst. Simeon, it's good to have you. And you're talking about the dollar uh, retailers. Is that right? Yep. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Yeah, Dollar Tree, Dollar General, uh, the next round starts tomorrow. Um, big stakes because the low-income consumer, this is the potential tip of the iceberg. This is why I think we've seen such big reactions this week from retail in the last two weeks because the market's afraid that the low end is beginning to crack, and that will pre, you know, presage a, a slowdown from the middle to, low, uh, to the high-end tiers as well. Anything you're picking up in the way that you survey these uh, names, you're equal weight on both of them. So you're not buyers, but you're not exactly sellers either. We're a bit we're a bit tentative on the dollar names. Now, in a typical, let's say, slower growth playbook, these stores would be beneficiaries of trade down. We don't know if, if that's happening quite yet. Um, these stocks, actually, these companies start to they begin to, um, to see a little bit of weaker demand before you see the benefit of trade down. The other theme coming into this year is you have a higher cost of doing business. Both of these businesses, higher wages, uh, transportation costs, which was the theme of Walmart and Target last week. We're afraid of that. And then the biggest thing is what happens to lower income consumer spending. Last year, these both of these businesses and that lower income cohort benefited greatly from stimulus. And then this year, we thought there's big headwinds, especially in the first part of the year, given the lack of stimulus. What's the most bullish thing they could say right now? Uh, no trading down or no trading down from the core customer and at the level of discretionary spend that they saw in their first quarter uh, held up versus last year. Because that would say that, you know, the lower income consumer is bucking the macro trends that, frankly, Walmart and Target saw that uh, admitted that they were already seeing. Exactly. And I think we all would have felt better about the impact of freight or even labor on those businesses if they didn't talk about that price sensitivity among that shopper. Any other takeaways as we work through a very murky and muddy retail earnings season, Simeon? Well, um, we use this as a title, but the idea that nothing is terrible, but everything is worse. <laughs> um, the consumer's hanging in. Uh, there's been no real uh, you know, degradation in demand yet. Inflation is what's holding up total sales growth, to be clear. But companies aren't really cutting because demand is, is falling off. It was a little bit uh, looking around the corner to say, hey, things could get worse. Costs are higher than we expected. Some receipt of inventory is coming in erratically, and that's causing us to mark things down in case things continue to get worse. But we're keeping the glue together. But because we're lapping the unprecedented levels of demand and earnings we've had two years ago, it's hard to disprove that things won't continue to get worse. Right, exactly. And that sounds a little bit like what Ian Shepardson was just telling us as well. On a macro basis, he sees the consumer hanging in there. What does Dick's Sporting Goods tell you that that stock would have been down 10% on results and soft guidance last night? But then this morning when they clarified the business is currently still good and they were just trying to be conservative, the shares are now up by almost the same amount. Dick's epitomizes, I would call, the classic retailer who had massive margin and earning gains during COVID and sales gains where the market, it's hard to disprove or prove what the normalized level of earnings will be post-COVID. Um, and what they did is they, they proactively took guidance down. They said, we're not seeing anything. But the, uh, the idea is if, in theory, you're short that stock in the back half of this year, it may become difficult because if we don't see further changes, they've just moved from a potential 
you know, guidance cut position to hmm. now they may may have to revise positively. So they've they've kind of changed the game, no pun intended, on, on Dick's right. board. Well, hopefully they would know how. Uh, and the market reaction, again, speaks a lot to what may be taking place here. Simeon, great to have you on your way out. Just give us your couple favorite names in your space right now. Um, I still prefer scale, uh, large company quality. It's going to be Walmart who just reset. It's defensive scale. They can manage through tough environments. And we still like Home Depot. How home improvement hasn't cracked. We think it'll hang in better than you think. Big company, not as much earnings risk as perceived and able and pretty close on valuation as far as recessionary valuation or bottom valuation. Yeah, I was at a stone distributor yesterday. There's so much demand. They, eh, It's a long story, but there's still quite a bit of demand out there. Simeon, it's great to see you today. Thanks so much. Thanks. Simeon Thanks, Gutman from Morgan Stanley. Still ahead, natural gas prices surging above $9 per million BTUs. This is the highest level since August 08. Oil still around $110 a barrel and gasoline prices above $7 a gallon in some parts of the country. We'll look at the future for energy stocks and consumer discretionary plays. Plus, this retail stock is surging today up 12%, not because of earnings. We have the name and what's driving the gains next. And as we head to break, let's take a look at the Dow heat map this hour. Only about nine names are in the green right now, but Amex, Home Depot, and Chevron are your biggest gainers. P&G, Merck, and Honeywell are all weighing on the index. Uh, We'll be back in a moment. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at Chevron.com slash meeting demand. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Here's a quick look at the sectors in the market today. The Dow overall was up about 200 points at the highs, and currently we're down about 57. The S&P hanging on to a five-point gain. The Nasdaq up half a percent today, so that's the leadership. Odd bedfellows in terms of sectors where we have both consumer discretionary and energy in the green. Technology trying to join that as well. Consumer discretionary up about 2% right now. I'll take a quick look across the mega cap tech names as well with Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Tesla all under scrutiny. Tesla in particular, it's rebounding 5.5% right now to about 662. Apple is negative by almost 1%, still hovering around 139. Kohl's was the mystery chart we showed you into the break. The stock is surging on reports that bidders are preparing to make binding offers for the retailer, though they're likely to be lower than their early indications. CNBC learning in just the past few minutes that Simon Property Group, the biggest U.S. mall manager, is not planning to make a bid here. KSS still up 12 percent. Elsewhere, Abercrombie & Fitch is rebounding after its worst day ever. It had that disappointing earnings yesterday. Shares are still down 20 percent for the week, but up 13 percent today. 
And check out shares of Valvoline surging on the Wall Street Journal reports that Saudi Aramco has approached the company about a takeover deal. 12.5% gain for Triple V. Coming up, what do NVIDIA, Snowflake, and Splunk all have in common? They beat fourth quarter estimates. They're down more than 50% from their highs, and they all report after the bell today. We've got the action, the story, and the trade in earnings exchange next. Welcome back. Governor Greg Abbott is holding a news conference on yesterday's elementary school shooting in Texas. Let's listen in. All Texans are grieving with the people of Uvalde. And people are rightfully angry about what has happened. Events like this, they tear at the fabric of a community. Our job is to ensure that the community is not going to be ripped apart. All Texans must come together and support the families who have been affected by this horrific tragedy. What they need now more than ever is our love. What they need is uplifting from all of our fellow Texans and all of our fellow Americans. And let me emphasize something that I know you all know. But the reality is, as horrible as what happened, it could have been worse. The reason it was not worse is because law enforcement officials did what they do. They showed amazing courage by running toward gunfire for the singular purpose of trying to save lives. And it is a fact that because of their quick response, getting on the scene, being able to respond to the gunman and eliminate the gunman, they were able to save lives. Unfortunately, not enough. But I want to make sure that everybody knows all of the law enforcement agencies and groups that are involved and were involved in this process. The Texas Rangers are leading the investigation, and they are supported by the Texas Department of Public Safety Highway Patrol, the Texas Department of Public Safety Criminal Investigative Division, DPS Aircraft, DPS Intelligence Counterterrorism Division, DPS Crime and Victim Support. They're also supported by the Texas Division of Emergency Management, the FBI, as well as multiple federal partners, including the DEA, ATF, HSI, and Border Patrol. And then, of course, the, the valiant local officials, the Uvalde Sheriff's Department, Uvalde Police Department, Uvalde Independent School District Police, Uvalde County Constables, Uvalde Mayor, the County Judge, Uvalde District Attorney's Office, local public works and surrounding police uh, department, and the San Antonio Police and Fire Department also. Let me walk you through some of the facts of what has happened. There's been a lot of things that have been said. Some are correct, some are incorrect. Let me tell you the best information that we have at this time. Understanding 
very importantly, that this is an ongoing investigation and on, ongoing investigations often reveal new information as those investigations progress. The first thing that happened was that the gunman shot his grandmother in the face. She then contacted police. The gunman fled, and uh, as he was fleeing, he had an accident just outside of the elementary school, and he ran into the school. Officers with the Consolidated Independent School District, they approached the gunman and engaged with the gunman uh, at that time. The gunman then entered a back door and went down two short hallways and then into a classroom on the left-hand side. The gun room uh, entered into that classroom, and the classroom was connected internally to another classroom. Border Patrol, Consolidated ISD officers, police, sheriffs, and DPS officers converged on that classroom. And a Border Patrol officer killed the gunman. As I said, Texas Rangers are leading the investigation, joined by federal, state, and local law enforcement officials. At this time, we know that 19 children Nineteen children have lost their lives. Two faculty members lost their lives. In addition to that, there are 17 people who are injured, but their injuries are not life-threatening. All family members of all of these students and faculty members have been contacted and informed about the circumstances. Officials are working with parents to ensure that their parents are going to be able to see their children. Parents should contact victim services at the county fairplex. We know that there are parents still striving to make a connection. All parents are welcome and urge to contact victim services at the county fairplex. The gunman was 18 years old and reportedly a high school dropout. Reportedly, there has been no criminal history identified yet. He may have had a juvenile record, but that is yet to be determined. There was no known mental health history of the gunman. He used one weapon, which was an AR-15, uh, using 223 rounds. There was no meaningful forewarning of this crime, other than what I'm about to tell you. As of this time, the only information that was known in advance was posted by the government on Facebook approximately 30 minutes before reaching the school. The first post was to the point of, he said, I'm going to shoot my grandmother. The second post was, I shot my grandmother. The third post 
maybe less than 15 minutes before arriving at the school was, I'm going to shoot an elementary school. I mentioned that during the shootout that took place at the school, in addition to the students and the faculty, there were three officers who were injured who were all remaining in good condition. One deputy sheriff lost a daughter in that school. Before coming out here, we had a long discussion with law enforcement at all levels. We had a discussion with community leaders, elected officials. And I asked the sheriff and others and opened in a question and got the same answer from the sheriff as well as from the mayor of Uvalde. The question was, what is the problem here? And they were straightforward and emphatic. They said, we have a mental, we, we have a problem with mental health illness in this community. And then they elaborated on the magnitude of the mental health challenges that they are facing in the community and the need for more mental health support in this region. I want to make sure everybody understands uh, the mental health services that are available at this time. With me making one clarifying point in advance that I'm going to redouble down in the aftermath. Whenever anything as shocking and extraordinary and disturbing as this event is, occurs. There is an urgent need for everybody affected to access mental health. I cannot be more emphatic than saying with great urgency, everybody in this community, I mean everybody, The victims, the families, family members, friends, the, the, the law enforcement involved, but the entire community is in utter shock about this. Some physical wounds that were sustained by the officers, they're going to heal in the coming days. The mental and emotional wounds are far harder to see in last far longer. The state of Texas, working with federal and local officials and agencies, we're going to be here for a long, long time. And one key point that we will focus on is making sure that everybody in this community has the access they need for as long as they need it to address with the mental and emotional health care needs that they have. I want to list various agencies and, and make sure these are made available to the public. The mental health services currently available are from victim services from across the area from federal, state, and local levels, including the Family Resource Center at the Uvalde County Fairplex. Schools have crisis teams at the Uvalde Civic Center. They provide 
uh, wraparound uh, services for families who are affected. The Texas Child Mental Health Consortium, created by the state legislature in 2019, is available to assist. The Blue Bonnet Children's Advocacy Center available is available to provide services for children. The Texas Health and Human Services Commission uh, is on site uh, and will be available for ongoing provision of services. The Texas Education Agency is providing supplemental counseling services. The Texas Department of Public Safety Counseling is providing counseling services for law enforcement. And the FBI is also bringing in mental health services for law enforcement. It cannot be overemphasized the importance of law enforcement officers, all of them, seeking out and obtaining this mental health counseling. The district attorney's office uh, for victim services uh, has a phone number available for all victims, and candidly, the entire community, in a way, is a victim here. And I was provided their number to give out to you publicly. This is the number for the district attorney's office for victim services. The number is 830-278-2916. And at this time, I will uh, pass the mic to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Excuse me. Excuse me. The Texas Governor Greg Abbott addressing the horrible situation here in Uvalde, Texas. I'm Shepard Smith at the elementary school where it happened. Uh, not a lot of brand new information from the governor, only the confirmation 19 children killed yesterday during the gunman's rampage, plus two adults. Uh, more than a dozen are still uh, being treated for their injuries. We did learn today from Governor Abbott about these Facebook posts, ones we'd heard about but had not yet been confirmed by authorities. The gunman posted three Facebook posts. The first one, I'm going to shoot my grandmother, then I shot my grandmother, and then I'm going to shoot an elementary school. As we all know by now, he came in uh, heavily armed, uh, wearing body armor, uh, and barricaded himself inside one classroom where it's believed the major all of the children who were killed uh, died during that rampage. We'll have complete coverage tonight on the news, a special edition tonight beginning at 6 o'clock Eastern, 5 Central, for two hours live from U Uvalde, Texas. Uh, and our correspondents who are here on scene and the rest of the day's news for now. Kelly, back to you. All right, Shep, thank you very much. Our Shepard Smith on site in Uvalde. There will be much more on his program tonight. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Natural gas prices absolutely soaring, climbing above $9 today. That's the first time since August in two, of 2008. It's also the highest level. And that gas has more than doubled over just the past three months. We all know oil's holding above $110 a barrel. Still, gasoline is at a record high. Gas is now so expensive that in some areas of California, a gallon costs more than the federal minimum wage of $7.25. My next guest says the only fix for high prices is demand destruction. Joining me now is Dan Pickering the chief investment officer at Pickering Energy Partners. Dan, the market today points to this um, sort of strange situation we're in. Both consumer discretionary and energy are outperforming. We've had two guests on the show previously say the consumer's hanging in there, even with prices where they are. So at what point do we reach demand destruction? 
Ellie, we're going to we're going to have to find out because we've got a tight supply demand situation. You know, it's a, a problem six years in the making. We're not going to solve it in six weeks or six months. But it, it feels like right now we have a push pull between the the industrial consumer uh, with diesel and the, the retail consumer with gasoline. And, you know, in the near term, people are going to travel. They're going to spend whatever it takes. So it feels like prices are going to be high here for a while. It does. I mean, because we have a tight market globally. You know, this isn't just about a supply disruption. It's about incredibly high demand, tight supply markets. And then on top of that, any disruption is not helping the situation. So if we're at 110 now, should we expect to be here or higher for the foreseeable future? Well, we have China that's partially out of the market. They'll be coming back. Uh, there's questions about the economy and, and uh, whether or not high interest rates are going to dampen the economy. So the answer is, unless there is a significant, and I, and I stress the word significant, slowdown in the economy, 110, 100, 90, you know, high prices are going to be the answer. So we sort of see a world where oil's 80 plus for five years, gasoline's 350 plus for the next two or three years. So it, it's something I think we're going to have to get used to. Uh, and the question is, what are what are people going to sacrifice so they can keep keep driving? If you're a new buyer of energy names here, is what you've just described bullish or bearish? So it's it's bullish to an extent. Uh, too much more to the upside, and you have to start wondering if that's as good as it gets. We're not as good as it gets right now. I think duration's the real story. We sit here at $100 for two or three years. Uh, this sector is trading at two times cash flow, three times cash flow, and that's just too cheap. So our expectation is that we are going to see that sort of duration of, of reasonable commodity prices or good commodity prices. And so, you know, new money makes money from here, we think. You're in a natural gas expert, Dan. As we turn to that subject, it doesn't necessarily make you an expert on electricity, utilities, and what households are going to be paying in their bills, but that's inevitably where this discussion will lead over the summer. As uh, temperatures spike, how much are people going to feel a pinch from nat gas being over $9? Yeah, so we're, we're in the process of kind of globalizing the natural gas price. Uh, you know, $20 in Europe, and it was 4 or $5 here. It's now 8 or 9 That will make its way through to uh, utility bills. Uh, some customers are insulated based on the type of plans that they have. But the reality is gas is more expensive. Gas is a big chunk of our power generation here in, in the U.S., and so we will see it flow through to utility bills. And again, these are things that it is tough to not turn on your air conditioner. So demand is relatively inelastic. And so the question is, you're going to pay your utility bill. What are you not going to do? Right, exactly. All right. So let's get to some of your names in the industry. Um, where should investors be looking for you know, the most resilient names over the next, let's call it 12 plus months? Sure. And, and as I've said with you a fair number of times, you know, the first the first stage is you want to be invested. This is going to be a good spot to be both absolute and relative performance. We like the oil field service sector here because we think that high prices will lead to more drilling activity. And so we like, you know, the, the oil field service uh, ETF, the OIH. Uh, one of our favorites continues to be Diamondback Energy, a Permian Basin uh, uh, oil and gas producer. That stock's lagged year to date. Some of its peers, we think it could play catch up. And then natural gas, want to stay exposed to that. Uh, a new name for us, but one we like a lot here, Southwestern Energy. Uh, this is a company that produces gas in both the East Coast and the Gulf Coast. 
It's also lagged its peers. Another great chance for a, a catch-up play. Quick final question. I asked one of our value investors off the top of the show whether he would be looking through energy right now. And his concern is that the political response ends up in some kind of export ban that could see prices fall substantially. Uh, do you think the Biden administration might do something like that? How big is the political risk, especially into the midterms? It's growing because, you know, voters don't like paying more at the pump or more at their utility bill. And so, you know, politicians want to sort of appease that if they could. Uh, export ban doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You wind up trapping the commodity, uh, such as oil, but that doesn't necessarily bring down gasoline prices. And so it, to me, that's misguided. A, a better response would be cut the gas tax. You could take 10 or 20 cents a gallon out of the gas tax. It costs the government revenue, but it would it would be immediate a relief for the consumer at the pump. Yeah, right. well, and again, I, I think even Abe would agree with you that it might not have a good effect, but he nevertheless sees it as a risk. Let's put it that way uh, as, a, as an energy investor. Quick final question. It has been a busy news day for your industry. I mean, what is the significance of Aramco possibly looking at Valvoline? Yeah, um, what it says is this industry had a near-death experience. We're now flush with cash across the industry. And um, when you've got a lot of money, you're thinking about how do you leverage your advantages. And so whether it's Aramco Valvoline or other M&A throughout uh, the sector, I think you know, you're going to start to see companies, whether they're state-owned or public companies, play offense. And so I think that means we'll see more of these kinds of potential combinations over the next 18 months. All right. Maybe another uh, bullish catalyst for some of these names is if they needed one right now. Dan, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Dan Pickering with Pickering Energy Partners. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.